You may have noticed uh, the news report last month that the British actor Alan Sidney Patrick Rickman died. He passed away January the 14th. You may not be familiar with his name, but you will probably recognize him from at least one of the many roles he played in the movies, Severus Snape from the Harry Potter series. He was the head of Slytherin House and taught potions at Hogwarts School. And for most of the eight films and the seven books, he was Harry Potter's sworn enemy. He appeared to be a supporter of Lord Voldemort, but it is only at the end of the book and the films that his true loyalties are revealed. He was a double agent all along. J.K. Rowling said that he was the real hero of her books in the Harry Potter series, and in fact, that at the very beginning of the whole series, she plotted the structure of the seven books around Severus Snape. Rowling's books, of course, were immensely popular. You don't need me to tell you that. They sold over 325 million copies worldwide. But they were also controversial for their creation of an alternate reality magical world. Though the real magic of the series was that it got millions of kids who did not seem to have the word book in their vocabulary to read, uh, no other reason than the sheer joy of reading. But there's another point in favor of the books, one that seldom receives attention in discussions about the merits or defaults of making a complicated wizard like Severus Snape the unspoken hero of a literary franchise. It introduced the idea of evil to a generation that rarely ever heard the word. I don't mean natural evil like tsunamis or earthquakes. I mean personal intelligent evil, a parasitic malignancy that is also highly intelligent and a spiritual entity. In Rowling's books, this sounds like a description of Lord Voldemort. Though Rowling's preoccupation with evil over the course of seven hefty novels and the film adaptations has taken some of her more secular readers by surprise. And this is largely because evil does not fit in the modern cultural and scientific worldview, a worldview shaped by the Enlightenment which reacts to the evidence for evil in one, either one of two ways. First, deny it. The existence of a personal force of evil, a.k.a. Satan or the devil, is usually dismissed as a quaint medieval superstition, something on a par with belief in fairies and elves. And so the devil languishes in Hollywood, the only place left that accords him any respect, where he, where he squanders his considerable talents for mayhem playing bit parts in cheesy exorcist films, some of those films you've probably seen. Also denied is the possibility that human beings are themselves capable of evil. In place of moral culpability, we have substituted a culture that exalts victimization. Throw in psychological buzzwords like diminished responsibility and contributing factors, and accountability for evil can, by a sleight of hand, be shifted away from the perpetrator with trite moralisms to the effect that, quote, people do bad things 
because bad things have been done to them. Behind this lies the modern myth of progress that envisions a steady march toward a bright future made possible by science and technology, like this, week, this week's headlines about the discovery of gravity waves. Well, we've discovered them. Now what are we going to do with them? The narrative here is that science will find cures for all diseases and psychological disturbances, and American-style democracy will produce peace and prosperity all over the globe. Good schools and higher education will lower crime and open the doors to better opportunities. This is the brave new world we have shaped for ourselves, a world of endless progress into a bright future. And then a gunman goes on a rampage at a shopping mall or a university, and suddenly people are shocked because this kind of thing is not supposed to happen in our enlightened times. This is where the other reaction to evil comes in. When evil hits us in the face and cannot be denied, we either try to destroy it with smart bombs, cruise missiles, and capital punishment, or we assume the moral high ground and divide the world into two camps, us and them. This Sunday, we have St. Matthew's St. Luke's dramatic account of the temptation of Christ. We don't have the luxury of listening to this passage in a moral void. We hear it within a cultural backdrop where, despite all our efforts, the mystery of evil is still greater than the sum of its parts. And this means that we hear it as a drama in which you and I also play a role. Christ resisted sin and evil, whereas we find sin irresistible. Historically, this incident in Luke takes place after the baptism of Christ in the beginning of his public ministry, right at the beginning of his public ministry. But liturgically, we listen to the event unfold at the beginning of Lent, somewhere between the two major seasons of Christmas and Easter. And this should alert us to the passage's real significance it unpacks the implication of the Incarnation. It reveals the why and the how behind God's subversive plan to free us from our bondage to evil by exposing himself to humanity's radical helplessness. At the same time, it unveils, I think, the logic of the cross as the place where the incarnate Logos will offer himself as human bait to the ultimate evil, death. On Good Friday, death will take the bait, rise up, and swallow Christ whole. But if Christ's humanity is the lure, his divinity will be the hook that snags death and drags it kicking and screaming from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. So, the Gospel is laying out a Christology, teaching us that if we are experts in the murky business of sin and evil, Christ was not. But the Gospel also lays out a geography of the human heart by telling us that the dividing line between good and evil does not run between an us and a them. It runs straight down the middle of our own hearts. 
It is the teaching of both the Gospels and the Fathers that although we have been made in the image and likeness of God, we are not that living likeness itself. That distinction belongs to Christ alone. He is, in the fullest sense, the one true image of God. Because of his divine nature, he reveals uh, to us who God is, and because of his human nature, he reveals who we are. And this is why the preface for Lent can talk about Lent as a joyful season. This is the source of Catholic realism about the nature of evil and Catholic optimism about the future of the world. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are in some sense invincible, not with the smug self-satisfaction of a self-righteous sect, not with the self-conscious perfection of the human potential movement, but with the gospel conviction that Christ has already won for us the victory over evil if only we cooperate with him. And learning how to cooperate is what Lent is all about.